we're in a place where hostility towards Jesus is reaching its peak. He's in the week that he's going to be crucified. He's come into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. The crowds have praised him, but the religious leaders are upset at him because of the overturning of tables and money changers in the temple precincts. And these religious leaders are now going to conspire with the Roman authorities to put Christ to death. But they feel first that they need to build a case against Jesus. And in the final week before his death, that's precisely what they are going to attempt to do. Now, we don't have the time today to dissect the entire passage. It'll it'll take us a number of weeks to actually get through this whole section because this one episode runs all the way through the end of chapter 12. Uh, In this episode, as we're going to see today, the Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus and ask him if it's biblical for God's people to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. Then, as we'll see in a subsequent study, these Sadducees come to Jesus and they try to twist him theologically in order to prove their point that life after death or the resurrection is a silly idea and Jesus is going to debunk They're thinking, then a lawyer is going to come and quiz Jesus about the greatest of all the biblical commandments. And Jesus is going to answer him superbly before then turning the tables on to the religious leaders by questioning them about their understanding of the Messiah. They did not realize that not only would he be a descendant of David, but would also be pre-existent before David. And then Jesus is going to rebuke their hypocrisy before then celebrating a widow who gave two mites in sacrifice to God. All of those things happen in this one movement that we're going to begin uh, today. It's a beautiful section of scripture, but it'd be a lot to try to unload onto all of us today. So we're just gonna take a look at the first little section. We're gonna watch Jesus get challenged about Rome, about government oppression of God's people. So let's begin with verse 13. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. All right, the first thing I want to point out to you is who it is that came to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, These guys were actually enemies against each other, but uh, they came together in their animosity towards Christ in an attempt to stop Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, for their part, they were against the Roman government. It really grated on them. It bothered them that the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, people who'd been promised the land of Canaan, Uh, in their covenant with God, it bothered them that they would be a people under Roman occupation, really bugged them. To them, the idea of paying taxes to Rome was unbiblical, unethical, and unholy. They felt like it was a great compromise among God's people to pay the annual poll or census tax demanded by the unrighteous emperor in Rome. That was their position. But they came with a group called the Herodians. Now the Herodians had actually joined themselves to the political power that was Rome. 
And because of their willingness to comply with Rome, accept Rome, uh, be favorable towards Rome, they actually found themselves with lots of political influence in Israel at that time. And Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching actually threatened to disrupt the political power that they had accumulated over the years. He was a threat to their political advantage because he was stirring up the crowds. So these two groups, they come to Jesus to challenge him about Rome's taxation or occupation of Israel. Now, they weren't looking for Jesus to be an arbiter of their debate. In other words, they weren't coming to Jesus like little children come to their parents asking them to settle an argument, to settle a dispute. No, we read it there in verse 13. Look at it again. They came to trap him in his talk. I like the way Luke describes it. He says in Luke 20, verse 20, that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. These guys thought that whatever answer they could get Jesus to say would get Jesus into trouble, either with the dissenting crowds who hated Rome or Rome who hated dissenting crowds. They thought they could get Jesus in trouble with one of those groups. They tried to trap Jesus, to put him on the horns of a dilemma. It reminds me of the verse in Psalm 38, verse 12. Tell me if this doesn't sound like what these guys are trying to do to Jesus. It says, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. That was the experience of Jesus, pure of heart, constantly under attack by people like these. All right, let's, so, so let's see how Jesus responds to this question. Verse 14, it says, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, I'm sure as we read that, you probably felt in your being or in yourself like, that's flattery. I'm pretty sure these guys are starting out with a word of flattery, and that's exactly what they're doing. Notice they tell Jesus that he's a man of integrity when they say in verse 14, we know that you are true. You're a man of integrity. They told Jesus that he was an independent thinker when they said in verse 14, you don't care about anyone's opinion. They told Jesus that he was impartial in his thinking when they said, you are not swayed by appearances. And they told Jesus that he was incorruptible in his teaching when they said, you truly teach the way of God. Now, all these things were true about Jesus, but they did not believe these things about Jesus. They said these things to Jesus in an attempt to manipulate him into giving a foolish answer. It was all flattery. You know, some people say that gossip 
is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. But flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. You see, they would have never talked about Jesus privately like this, with such complimentary terms. But to his face, they were effusively praising him before they asked him their question. They were trying to butter Jesus up to get him to make a mistake. But of course, we know it won't, it won't work on Jesus. It can't work on Jesus. He is full of integrity. He is an independent thinker. He is impartial in his thinking, and he is incorruptible in his teaching. And because he's these things, he cannot be susceptible to flattery. They were trying to appeal to Jesus' sinful flesh, but Jesus would not and could not sin. He's the son of God. He was impervious to their lame temptations. But before I move on in the passage, I should just say it like this. We must recognize that we are not so strong. We are not always like Jesus. We can be susceptible to forms of flattery like this. If we aren't careful, we can fall into the trap that the Pharisees and Herodians set for Jesus. Let me give you an example from our modern time. A lot of you actually have told me in recent days that you've recently watched The Social Dilemma, the documentary that Netflix came out with that exposes just how cold and crafted our social media feeds have become. Many of you in watching that discovered that those feeds aren't designed to show you a realistic view of the world but a view that you agree with or like in order to keep you online a little longer, giving a little more information to the powers that be. And I'm glad that many of you have come to realize some of the effects that that siloing kind of effect can have on your psyche and upon your spirit. But one major effect of that reality is this. Your device is often a space that is carefully cold and crafted to tell you how right you are. You've chosen apps, you've chosen people to follow, you've chosen the material to consume that would bolster your notions. Our phones can say to us, you are full of integrity. You are independent. You are impartial. You are incorruptible in your thinking. We have to remember That though we're children of God, forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus, we still have a sinful flesh. So we should not so easily trust our conclusions. Instead, we have to repeatedly go back to the rock-solid truth of God's word. It's our only refuge. Only it, not our emotions or feelings or convictions, can be trusted. we got to get back constantly to the Bible. We've got to watch out for flattery that says, whatever you think, that's the right thing to be thinking. No, we've got to go to the Word of God. All right, thanks for letting me be on that little soapbox for a minute. Let's move on into this passage, look at the question that they asked in verse 14. They set this trap for Jesus and then say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar 
or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, I don't want you guys to miss the question that these men were asking Jesus. They were not asking, hey, Jesus, what's Roman law say? Is it the law that we pay the poll tax or the census tax? Does does the Roman law require taxation? They weren't quizzing Jesus on the Roman constitution. No, they were asking about the Bible. They were asking about God's law. Was it lawful for the people of Israel, the covenant community of God, the household of faith, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to pay taxes to a foreign power? What did God's law say? That's the emphasis. That's the question. That's why they ask it like that in verse 14. Should we pay them or should we not pay them? They knew that they were God's special people. It didn't seem right to them that God's people would be bullied about by a tyrannical dictator from Rome. How could we be treated like that? We're the people of Israel. So what did Jesus think? Again, their attempt was to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he, if he affirmed taxation, the masses would be mad at him. If he rebelled against taxation, Rome would be forced to deal with him. So how did Jesus respond? Let's go on in verse 15. It says, but, but Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, before we look at the final nail in the coffin word that Jesus delivered in answering their question, we have to think about this little interaction. Jesus was not about to be overtaken by their underhanded questions. Mark says in verse 15 that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. It reminds me of the passage in John chapter 2, which tells us that Jesus would not commit himself to the praise of human beings because he himself knew what was in man. John 2 verse 25. Now knowing what these Pharisees and Herodians were made of helped Jesus avoid their trap. He was alert to who they were. And in response to their test, Jesus told them to bring him a denarius so he could inspect it. Only then would Jesus give his answer. So in verse 16, it says that they brought a denarius to Jesus. They brought one to Jesus. It was a cool little incriminating event. They lived their daily lives with the coinage of Caesar in their pockets. They traveled Roman roads. They traded on Roman routes. They lived in Roman society. And here, they produce a Roman denarius. This revealed that they were part of the very system they denounced. They might have hated paying the census tax, but they benefited in in at least some ways from the governmental situation that they found themselves in. And Jesus pointed this out by asking them whose image and inscription were on the denarius. Now, now the portrait that was on the coin that Jesus held, the denarius, 
it was likely in a, a portrait of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription in Latin would have said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, listen to this now, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, that inscription and that image at its core was a claim to divinity and part of the imperial cult of emperor worship that was alive at that time. And they, the Jewish people, people of God, they were using this coinage. It was right there in their pockets. It was an incriminating moment. And Jesus said to them in verse 17, let's read his conclusion. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled because Jesus produced a perfectly balanced response. He's saying to them, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. This coin is made with his image impressed upon it. So if he's asking for taxes, you give him those taxes. You're using his system. You're using his infrastructure. So render to him what you must render to him. But you are made in God's image. God's image is impressed upon you. You're using his earth, and he made you. So render to God what is his due as well. Now, Jesus' answer is so cool because it distanced him from the zealots on one side who promoted all these drastic measures to rebel against the governing authorities. He even had an ex-zealot on his disciple team. And it also distanced Jesus from the Herodians on the other side who'd been absorbed into Rome's system. This was a, G a way for Jesus to declare a third way. To say, you're part of Rome's kingdom, absolutely. So be a good citizen and render to Caesar what belongs to him. But you're invited into a bigger kingdom, the kingdom of God. And you've got to give God what is due his name, what belongs to him. Now, when we think about this, we might wish that this revolutionary third way answered are more nuanced questions about a Christian's relationship with government. But before thinking about how it applies to some of those nuanced areas of life, I think we have to respect the monumental impact of Jesus' words. He was distancing himself from political anarchy on one hand, and this is especially impactful when you consider the tyranny of the Roman Empire. All right? It's not like they were kicking it in a democratic republic at that time. It was a tough situation that they were in. But even in that oppressive environment, Jesus proposed a way to honor Caesar while still honoring God. And this theme, of course, is repeated all throughout the Bible. Proverbs 24, verse 21 says, My son, fear the Lord and the king. And don't join with those who do otherwise. Romans 13, verse 1 and 2, which is part of a larger section about interacting with governing authorities, says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
And those who resist will incur judgment. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 17, where Peter encapsulates his teaching on the subject, concluding it by saying, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. But while we honor Caesar, we of course have to be careful to honor God. You know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter one that we are made in God's image. His image is impressed upon us just like the image of Caesar was impressed upon that denarius. Second Timothy 2, 19 tells us that his seal is impressed upon his people. So while we must pay our taxes and follow governmental legislation, we must also be sure to give God his due. And we must certainly never obey the governing authorities at the expense of our allegiance to God. We must never obey the governing authorities at expense to our allegiance to God. And I believe that this is an important distinction for modern believers to remember and to embrace for the years to come. You know, if I could just be frank at this point, it's not hard to imagine days coming when our governmental authorities or nearly all major American corporations mandate that people think and speak in a uniform way about issues like transgenderism, homosexuality, and their definitions of social equality. But believers with compassion in their hearts and truth in their minds should be ministers, instruments of reconciliation for those who are battling with the ideas that society is presenting them. We cannot and should not dishonor God by agreeing with deceptive ideas, by agreeing with things that are a lie. And we should instead reach out with the love of Christ because real human lives are at stake. And because of that, we must tell the truth, but also be ambassadors of Christ's love and his grace for people who are searching and groping for a love that is greater than anything that they can find out there. So we have to remember that it's important for us to always be more allegiant to God than anyone else. Now, this brings me to a more specific or direct question that I'm sure has been rolling around at least a few of your minds as I've been teaching this text. Isn't the government's ban on indoor religious services dishonoring of God? Shouldn't we resist so that we can give God his due? Now, admittedly, this passage from Jesus has caused Christians for thousands of years now to ask serious questions about their context and the troubles or difficulties that are presented in front of them. And people have come to various conclusions based on verses like these about our current cultural moment. For my part, though, I'm sure it's no surprise to all of you, I've felt that there's a balanced way forward for us to give Caesar his due while also giving God his due. You know, I've long felt, for example, that it's unconstitutional, according to the United States Constitution, 
for American governing authorities to tell the church what it can or cannot do in any way, but have been willing to comply with not meeting indoors with tons of people for the sake of fighting a pandemic. You know, the virus, it's a thing. And in recent days, there's some encouraging signs that the United States Supreme Court agrees with that position. Even if by a narrow margin, they're beginning to state that the state has no right to restrict the church or any religious assembly at all. And I think that's an important uh, truth for us to be able to embrace. This is good news. And to me, it puts us right back where we should have been at the very beginning of this whole thing, with the governing authorities asking religious groups to do what they could to provide safer gatherings for the sake of lowering community transmission of the virus. And for my part, I'm willing to do what we can, and I've also determined a path forward that enables us to serve the largest number of people in our community. So even though some of the restrictions might end up in the court of law being declared unconstitutional over time, they can still serve as a good guideline for large gatherings. I might not agree with every part of such guidelines, but I'm willing to tough it out for a season in an attempt to honor Caesar while also honoring God. Now, obviously, it's not hard to imagine some American believers taking this passage in a different way, like I already said. In a desire to honor God, they will want to go inside for worship with their whole church without any precautions or anything like that. And in some settings, if done with humility and grace, rather than a loud and prideful spirit, and if done with precautionary measures in place, I can get behind it, I can support. But I'm sure it goes without saying that's not the conclusion that I or our elder team have come to. But I can respect those who have those feelings. I think we're all going to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for the decisions that we've made. You know, a few weeks ago, as you know, I was down in Southern California doing some guest teaching at a couple of different churches. And after I was finished speaking, uh, kind of a customary thing is to be taken out to lunch if you're a guest speaker by the pastors that have invited you to come. So I was out to lunch with a small little table of pastors and one of the pastors was from the church there in Southern California, and another one of the pastors was actually home from his church in Ireland. And uh, we were there just kind of having a meal together, just enjoying each other. And this was down in a part of Southern California where I don't even know if they've heard about COVID yet. It just seemed like it didn't even exist down there. People were out and about, masks weren't being worn, it just a pretty casual, loose kind of environment. And the pastor from Ireland was flipping out. He was shocked uh, because their country is on very extreme lockdowns. He told me that recently he had to talk with three roommates in his church on Zoom, two of whom brought an accusation against the third. The third had allowed his girlfriend to come into their apartment for a couple of minutes to say hello. And the two roommates that weren't the boyfriend of this girl, they felt that this was such an extreme violation that required church discipline because this guy had brought another human being into their living space. I mean, they're not even allowed to go more than two miles right now and only to get groceries. Everybody's being carried by the government dime, and they are on an extreme version of lockdown. 
And he just looked around at the way that people were behaving, and it just tripped him out. He was so nervous about uh, the situation. And as he was sharing that with us, me and the other pastor from Southern California, we just kind of shook our heads and we thought to ourselves and even said out loud, man, that is so severe. That's got to be so difficult. I'm so glad that even though we've got the harder lockdowns here in California, I'm so glad they're not like that. But here's the thing. The reason I'm bringing up that little story or example is because Jesus never said that giving Caesar his due would be easy. He was not concerned with any nation's governing documents. He was concerned with a more important document, the word of God. And according to Jesus, these Israelites were just fine in paying taxes to the distant powers of Rome so long as they gave God his due. It might be hard, but it was, according to Jesus, right. So remember, brothers and sisters, we are part of two kingdoms, one that's imperfect and one that is perfect. Only the kingdom of God is led by a perfect individual, God himself. But we belong to both kingdoms. We belong to the earthly one and a heavenly one. So with that in mind, I thought that I could close our time by asking what are some biblical commitments that we can make as dual citizens, citizens of heaven and citizens uh, here on earth of some country or, or, or order. Here's the first conclusion. Number one, I will be a good citizen who lives in subjection to the governing authorities. We get this biblically from places like Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Basically, this is us saying, hey, if I'm allowed, I will engage in the political process, and I'll bring my biblical Christian convictions to the ballot box, and I will serve my nation, rooting for its very best, knowing that it will never be perfect like my heavenly kingdom, but still wanting its health and blessing. Number two, we could say it this way, I will remember the borderless kingdom. I will remember the borderless kingdom. You know, Joseph served Egypt. Daniel served Babylon. And Jesus served all of humanity. So we can say that our ultimate hope is in Christ and his borderless kingdom. Number three, I will obey the governmental authorities, but my worship is reserved for God alone. And I'll go to God in prayer for the government like the Bible tells me to in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll pray for those in authority, especially that they'll just leave the church alone so that we can get about our mission here on earth. But I will be submissive to the governing authorities, but my worship is reserved for God alone. Number four, I will acknowledge that governmental authority comes from God. This comes from places like Romans 13 and Genesis chapter 9. Though imperfect, it is one of God's ways of controlling unchecked wickedness in the heart of man. Bad government is almost always better than no government because our basic disposition is broken and evil. We are under sin. So God has instituted governing authorities to help keep sin in check. Number five, I will pay the taxes the government asks 
of me. And I would just add the little caveat that I will judiciously steward all my resources well, and I will pay no more than is required. So be a good steward, pay what you have to, but also be judicious in the way you handle your finances. And number six, lastly, if the government tells me to behave in a way that is contrary to my biblical convictions, I will resist, do what the Bible commands, and deal with the consequences of breaking the law. That's just the way that it's going to be. This might take wisdom, it might take tact in the years to come, but I believe it's something that can be done. All right, let me close with one last little exhortation. Don't let yourself fixate on the government. Jesus didn't. He was in the thick of Roman oppression, and he had a few things to say about it, but he was focused on his mission. What, what the government does or doesn't do can lead to disappointment and frustration. And when we devote too much of our time observing the behavior of government, our spirit generally, I'm speaking in broad terms, it generally erodes and our character generally devolves. You know, Christmas time, Advent season, it's, it's a time for hope. For thousands of years, God's people have hoped in the coming of a figure who would right every wrong and repeal the ugly effects of sin. And Jesus came. That's what Christmas is all about. And he will come again. And when he does, according to nine, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. One day, that kingdom of God will collide with our reality and will be the only kingdom that is left.